I'm uh, Pastor Wade, one of the pastors here, and um, I want to, uh, like Carly mentioned, um, Happy Mother's Day to those who are mothers. This is uh, something that is amazing, um, so we want to honor that, uh, but we also want to acknowledge that this day is difficult for many, um, for uh, many people. Uh, this is a difficult day because their relationship with their mothers is is strained or um, their mothers are no longer with them. Um, for some of us, uh, this, we're, we're not in that place right now where um, we can call ourselves mother. And um, I'm not sure what to say to that. Um, these are painful things. Um, but we acknowledge um, that this is difficult, but we also confess that God is good, that he weeps with us, he hears our cries, and... Um, Whatever happens between now and when we see him face to face, um, he's going to work all things for um, the good of those who love him and that he one day will make all things beautiful and glorious. So um, let's celebrate what, what we can celebrate. Um, let's mourn where we need to mourn and um, rejoice that God is God and we're not. Um, today we are in the book of Deuteronomy and uh, we're still in the first chapter. Last week, Pastor Michael, he spoke on Israel's refusal to enter the land that was promised to them. Um, so the Israelites, they, they heard the command. They did not take God at his word, and they gave into fear rather than trust in God. Um, do you remember God told them to take the land, and they said they're going to send out spies, and they say things are too scary in there, so we're not going to go in. And at the root of their sin was their unbelief in the goodness of God. And that is at the root of all our sins as well. Do you remember if you go back to Genesis, uh, the very first sin, when the serpent questioned Eve if what God said was really true? Um, what was at the heart of that question to Eve? The serpent was saying, is God really good to you? Or is he holding out on you? Can you really trust him? This is questioning the goodness of God. And for those of us here this morning, if we really believe that God was good, I think for many of us, it would change the way that we look at everything. It would change the way that we live. If we really believe that this God that we worship is good in all circumstances, we could listen to him and obey him with the confidence that in the end we'll be taken care of and that things really work out for our good and for his glory. Um, but this wasn't the case for the Israelites in today's passage, Moses tells them that there will be consequences to their rebellion. And that leads us to today's passage. This is in your bulletin, or you can follow along on your screen at home. Deuteronomy 1, verses 34 to 46. This is Moses speaking. And the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give your, to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, You also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness, in the direction of the Red Sea. Verse 41, Then you answered me, 
We have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord. But the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh. I'm sorry. At Kadesh, many days, the days that you remained there. This is the word of God. So here's what's happening. Moses is recounting the failure of the Israelites in today's passage. And and he's saying, you failed to enter the land as you were commanded. God is angered by your unwillingness. And none of the current generation, except for two, will enter the land. And the Israelites, they, they hear the words of Moses and they can't accept this possibility that they won't be entering into the land. So they devise plans to take the promised land on their own. And as we look at today's text, I want us to consider our own sin, our own attempts to take things into our own hands and what God respond, how God responds to that. So to do that, we have three points in your bulletin. Uh, number one, the consequence of unbelief. Number two, Israel's responsibility or Israel's response to the penalty for their sin. And number three, the only solution to their problem and to ours. Our first point, the consequence of unbelief. Um, if you've followed the news the past week, um, you may have come across this story of two young Americans who were charged with the murder of an, an Italian police officer. So what happened was in 2019, um, these they were at this uh, two years ago, they were teenage tourists um, and they were confronted by two police officers who approached them when someone called in a report of um, a, a drug deal. Um, A scuffle broke up between these teenagers and these cops and one of the officers was stabbed to death. And uh, a few days ago, I think this was just on Wednesday or Thursday, they were convicted and given a life sentence for their crime. Um, And this is the headline from the Associated Press. Family upset that two Americans got Italy's harshest sentence. They got life in prison. And this is uh, the article. The family of one of two Americans, both convicted of a fatal stabbing during a scuffle with an Italian police officer on Thursday, blasted the jury for ordering Italy's harshest punishment of life imprisonment, a sentence frequently meted out to mobsters who assassinate state officials. More than 12 hours after deliberations began, the jury of two judges and six civilians delivered verdicts and sentences Wednesday night that set off a collective gasp in the courtroom. Finnegan Lee Elder, 21, and Gabriel Natal Horth, 20, former schoolmates from the San Francisco area, were each found guilty of murder and four other counts and received Italy's stiffest punishment, which is life imprisonment. Um, I'm not opining on this case one way or the other, but I bring it to you to because in this story, we see people complaining about a harsh judgment for a crime. And as the headline told us, one of the, the, the family of one of these um, young men, they made their complaint known. And this made national headlines. They said, this is unfair. This is 
way too harsh. And what do they appeal to? They appeal to their own sense of justice. That even though their son is guilty of a crime, the sentence given to them was too harsh. It was too severe. Now, think back on your own life. Have you ever looked back at your own mistakes or your sins and you, and you thought, um, this was this is just too much. I mean, I'm reading the story of these two young men to you, and um, I'm guessing, even though they're from the Bay Area, um, we probably don't know them, so we're kind of detached from their situation. But I think we know the feeling of what it's like to be treated worse than we think we deserve. Uh, maybe you make a mistake and, and someone pounces on it. Um, you uh, left the window open at night and someone says, Why'd you do that? And they get on your case or you made some mistake at work and someone just jumps on you. Or maybe um, you've received a $400 traffic ticket for a minor infraction. Um, this just happened to me a couple times and I was outraged. Uh, a few a few weeks ago, I, I got a notice of a $25 fine for, um, for missing the payment on a $4 fast track toll. Um, and then I, a few weeks later, I got a... a uh, a letter in the mail saying, you now owe $29, $25 fine plus a $4 that you originally owed. And I was outraged. That's like a 600% uh, premium on top of the, the original toll. Um, to me, it seemed like the punishment was too harsh for the crime committed. Have you ever felt like the punishment was too harsh for an infraction or a mistake or an act of sin? I think that this is what the Israelites felt when they were on the outskirts of Canaan. In our passage today, Moses reminds his hearers of what happened on the outskirts of, of the promised land. And if you listen to um, Pastor Michael's message last week, it was a wonderful message on what is happening in the text. Um, he pointed out that they became fearful after hearing the reports from the spies and they refused to enter the land. And today's passage is a continuation of that. They're told that there is a penalty for the rebellion against the command of God to take the land. And in verses 34 and 35, the people, God, God hears the murmuring of the people and he was angered by their sin. Um, and he says, not one of you is going to see the land. Not one of you is going to enter into this land that was promised to you except for two. And um, that's the penalty. And it comes with this severe verbal phrase this, this severe phrase he calls them an evil generation israelites you are an evil generation for their act of disobedience an entire generation was forbidden to enter the promised land and they would have to wander the desert for 40 years and the text goes even further we're told that moses himself was barred from entering the land he was forbidden to enter the land for another reason. If you, if we remember our um, our Old Testament in the Book of Numbers, Moses presumptuously struck the rock at Meribah, and God says, "For that, you're not going to enter the land." Now, looking looking at these accounts, it seems overly strict, overly severe. It seems perhaps even cruel. Why would God tell His people that He's going to rescue them, and then they're going to enter the Promised Land? And then once they're at the outskirts, be told that they're actually not going to enter. They're not going to step foot in that. It would seem to someone like me, it would just be 
more reasonable to be reprimanded. And maybe for a few days, maybe for even for a few months, they could just think back on their mistaken sin. And then after that, after they've uh, thought it through and after they've felt the weight of their sin and the guilt, after they've promised not to do that again, then they could go in. And maybe this is how we might think as well. If we really thought about it, this seems unfair that an entire generation is excluded from the land. So the question is, why can't God let them go in? And this is the reason. They were treating God and his commandments as burdensome. To them, this was a transactional relationship with Yahweh. Do this and get that. That's transactional. If we remember where the Israelites came from, do you remember they came from the land of Egypt, which is the land of slavery? And what was their relationship to authority? Their understanding of the relationship was this, um, that we were to do something that we were told, and if we did what we were told, the punishment would be less severe, or they'd get little portions of whatever it was they wanted. And this was ingrained in their, in their thinking. This, this carved pathways into their minds of how to understand the situation. And their, their default way of thinking about authority was one of slave and master. But as we read in last week's passage, this is not how it is with Yahweh. Pastor Michael last week, he pointed out that God describes himself in familial terms. He speaks of the the children of Israel as children, their sons and daughters of him. Look, if, if you, it's, this is not in your bulletin, but if you look at verse 31, God refers to himself as a father. He cares for his people the same way that a father cares for his own children. Now, this is in contrast to how they understood authority. A father doesn't view his relationship with his sons and daughters as transactional, as these Israelites assumed. Now, if you're a parent, um, you could probably attest to this. Let me ask you these questions. Do you keep track of every dollar that you spend on your child, on their housing, on their food, and their toys, and their music lessons, and sports leagues? Do you keep a log of all the hours you spent playing with them and reading to them and disciplining them and, and teaching them and feeding them and cooking for them? And do you take all these things and expect them to pay you back in kind when the time is right? If this is a healthy relationship, this is not something that you're going to do as a parent. Why not? Because to care for a child will always require more of you than your child will ever be able to repay you. But what would honor you as a parent? What would make you go, yes, I am this child's parent and I am so honored by them. What would, what would make you feel that? It would be their delight in being a son or a daughter of you. It would be to listen to their laughter and, and see them playing and just enjoying life. That would honor you. It would be their attention when you speak to them, that they actually listen to you. It would be that they trust you when they're feeling scared and afraid. And they know that their mother or the father is going to be there to protect them. That is what is going to honor you as a parent. And this is the relationship that Yahweh established with his people. 
he wasn't asking them to obey for the sake of obedience. He's commanding them something. He's, he's commanding something of them because to obey him would be his way of showing them their hearts. Showing them his hearts. To obey God, Yahweh, Father God, would be his way of showing his heart of love toward them. And God is saying, I think you've forgotten that. There is an amazing passage in the book of Hosea that recounts what God did for Israel um, after he rescues them from Egypt. And here are a few verses from Hosea 11. This is the, uh, the minor prophet in the Old Testament. God speaking of Israel. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. There is that language of fatherhood and sonship. I I taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim was another name for Israel. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebulun? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. If you pay attention to the language in this passage, it is remarkable. This is not the type of language that the Israelites were used to. They were used to language like, do this or be punished. Do that because I told you to. Because you're under submission, so do it. But God says here in Hosea, I led you with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I have compassion for you that is growing. There's warmth and tenderness. Indelible Grace Church, this is your God. This is your God. His heart is warm and tender toward you. He's rescued you. He has led you. He's been faithful to you. Even when you did not trust him. Even when you were stubborn. Even when you wanted nothing to do with God. God has followed you with kindness and mercy and goodness. This is your God. So back to our passage, why does God impose such strict and severe penalty on his disobedient children? Because it shows us how much God values his relationship with his children. Because the breaking of our relationship with him is the single worst thing that you can do. It's the worst thing that can be broken. And the harshness of the judgment tells us just how terrible it is to not trust God as your father. So we need to understand that unbelief is not ultimately about rules. It's about a relationship. And the end goal of belief in God is not the promised land. The end goal of belief in God is not the promised land. The end goal of belief is God himself. So sin is this. It's not trusting the heart of God. And this is what Pastor Michael spoke about last week. I'm going to say it again. 
do you believe that God is for you? Do you really believe that God is kind and good toward you? Sin is not trusting the heart of God. And because God is a jealous God, because he wants us holy to himself, he'll take away what is good so that we would see the value of what is best. So this is the consequence for Israel's unbelief, for their sin. Our next point. So Israel sees that there's a problem. Israel responds. So after the Lord tells them, this is our second point, after the Lord tells the Israelites what they can't have, then they, they, they say, um, actually, we do want that now. I want it now. And even though they previously decided it wasn't worth it, after they saw the inhabitants of the land and they were um, intimidated and scared by the inhabitants, now, after they've heard the consequence, now they want to take possession of it. And our passage shows how they try to get it. They, they recognize the problem and they try to take matters into their own hands. Look at verse 41. Then you answered me, we have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. Now, verse 41 comes right after a verse that tells them uh, this, that they are to turn back toward the Red Sea. God tells them, You've had your chance. Now turn around. You're not entering the land. In verse 41, Israel is willingly and consciously disobeying God. They're saying, God, the relationship we have is secondary to the physical land that we want. Look at the verse and consider the presumption on the part of the Israelites. This, the word presumption is even in the text. We ourselves will go up and fight. They think it's easy and they think that they don't need God. They, of course, give lip service to God. They acknowledge that they've sinned against him. They acknowledge that God has commanded them to take the land. But they are thinking at this point that they can take it on their own. And then they're defeated by the Amorites and they go back to God in tears And we're given this detail in verse 45, and I think it's a chilling one. Um, They go to the Lord in tears and weeping after they realize their mistake, after they realize that they can't do what they thought they could do. The Lord did not listen to them. Even though they experienced the consequences of their rebellion, and even though they went back to the Lord in sorrow, How does God respond? He closes his ears. He says, I'm not going to listen to you. And why is that? Again, this seems harsh. Why is it? It's because they were looking only to use God. They were looking to God as a tool. They acknowledged him. But they did what they perceived, and they did what they perceived his commands to be. They returned to the Lord in sorrow, but they missed the point. This was repentance, but it was a false repentance. And what was their sin here? Their sin was this, that they thought that they could use religion to get what they wanted. They viewed God as a means and not the end. They wanted autonomy and control. And that's, this is why they blatantly disobeyed God. They wanted to coat their desire for autonomy in the garb of religion. And God, Yahweh, 
their rescuer just happened to be incidental at this point. And how does this relate to us? We are not unlike the Israelites in Deuteronomy. And I'm guessing if you are here at the park, if you're listening to us online, um, you have some familiarity with religious culture and language. But we need to ask ourselves this. Are we just comfortable with that? Are we comfortable with church attendance and singing worship songs and going to community groups and taking part in whatever? Um, Are we just comfortable with that? Um, Do we care about that more than we care about God himself? Do we want God more than we want the gifts and promises of God? The Israelites, they wanted the latter. They wanted the gifts of God more than they wanted God himself. They would have rather have the land under their feet than the hand of their father. And at the very root of all our sin is a desire for control and independence. And we want our desires, we want our preferences and our needs met on our own terms. This is so many of us. This is me so often. And sometimes we'll even use religious language around our situations. But only until God doesn't give us what we want. When we realize that we're not going to get what it is that we desire, that's when the garb of religion comes off, maybe. And for many of us, the way to get the gifts of God is to ultimately avoid God, but just use the language of God to use a cloak of religion so that we can fool ourselves into thinking that our desires and our actions are righteous. Religion is a great way to avoid God. So we have to ask ourselves this. If God never gave us what we wanted, what if he didn't give us that job or that relationship or that type of family or that type of financial comfort, would you still worship God? Would you still worship God if you got nothing that you wanted? Would you still submit to him if nothing went your way? And how you answer that question is going to reveal whether you worship God or whether you use God. And I love the song that Nate led us in. Give me Jesus, give me Jesus. You can take all the worlds, but give me Jesus. What would our lives look like if that was what we actually believe, if that's actually what we wanted? You can take all the worlds, but give me Jesus. There's another problem that the rebellious Israelites have, and this is an even bigger problem, that God was against them. They blatantly disregarded his command. He told them that he would remove his presence from them as they try to take the land, and he wouldn't listen to their cries when they realized their predicaments. And this is by far, this is the biggest issue facing the rebellious Israelites. And as you read the text, you can sense this hopelessness We're given these details like the Israelites, they don't have enough people to take the land. Their weapons are not powerful enough. They were chased like bees by the opposing forces. Bees have no power against human beings. They're left to themselves and nothing can rescue them. And when you read this, you should be hearing despair and hopelessness. What we thought we could do, 
impossible. And their problem is our problem as well. Our biggest problem is that we've angered God with our disobedience. We haven't listened to him. We haven't honored him as we should. And maybe we feel the guilt of it. Maybe we need feel the need to make up for it somehow. Perhaps it's that we become more moral, that we become more charitable and kind and generous and helpful. Perhaps we even, just like the Israelites, we become really religious. We attend more religious services. We take part in more Christian things to make up for our shortcomings. But this didn't work out for the Israelites and neither will it work out for us. Because when you're trying to be good, you're going up against a perfect God. Your goodness isn't enough for perfection. And for those of us who think ourselves smart, I'm not in that category, by the way, um, our intellect isn't enough because the creator of the universe is way smarter than you and he knows far more than you do. You're not going to think your way out of a situation Our reputation and our achievements aren't enough because they don't really amount to anything because these are stacked up against the one who wrote history. And our prayers aren't enough because sometimes he's just not going to listen. And this is an awful thing because we're exposed to the anger of God. And if you're standing before this angry, holy, righteous God, then you have no hope. The situation is hopeless for you. It really is. You have no hope of survival when you stand before this God. If you're left to yourself. You have no hope of fixing your your problem. So what then can we do with our problems? What then shall we do with the impending judgment upon us? And this leads us to our final point. There's only one solution. So we're given the names of two figures in our passage, uh, Caleb and Joshua. uh, And in these two characters, I think we see something about how we're to think through our own problems. So Moses tells the Israelites, only only two of your generation are going to go into the land. One of them is Caleb. And Caleb, what's his description? He followed the Lord wholly. He trusted the Lord completely. He was the one that issued a minority report when all the other spies said the land is too much for us to take. He trusted God rather than men. This is a way to get into the promised land. Perfection, complete perfection in trusting God and doing what he asked us to do. And isn't it interesting that this is one of all the Israelites, however many there were, millions, one guy that was could say we could say that of him that he wholly trusted the lord i think the message is more than we should strive to be like that because chances are you're not going to be perfect you're not going to trust the lord wholly it doesn't mean you shouldn't try i think we all should that would honor him so then how can it be done Look at the passage again. There is Joshua, the son of Nun. And this is what the verse says. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit him. 
So Caleb's going to go in. Joshua's going to go in. But Joshua is going to bring people along with him. Um, look at the details of the verse. It doesn't say that Joshua is going to enable his people to fight for the land. It says that he, it will, he will cause them to inherit it. And what is an inheritance? An inheritance is something a son or a daughter gets from their father or their grandfather. And you did nothing to earn it. It was based solely on your relationship that you can get that inheritance. And this is the hope for the Israelites that would enter. We're told that their next generation is going to enter. And who's going to lead the way? Joshua. Joshua is going to lead the way. And he is going to cause Israel to inherit this land. They're not going to earn it. They're going to inherit it. Joshua is a preview of a coming Joshua. Joshua is a Hebrew name. Joshua means the Lord saves. And if you've heard the name Yeshua before, that means the Lord saves. And Yeshua is a name for Jesus. The name Jesus means the Lord saves. And here in this passage, we see Joshua as the Christ figure. What is the solution to our problems? It's Jesus who is going to cause us to inherit what we cannot earn. And this is the gospel. This is the gospel. That we have offended God just like the Israelites have. And we could not fix our problem. We deserve judgment and wrath and hell. But God would not leave it at that. So he gives us another Joshua, one who would save. And on the cross, Jesus took on the penalty for our sin. He bought for us the right to enter the land. And our promised land is not Canaan. Our promised land is not a good family or a good job. It's not a comfortable life. Our promised land is the very presence of God. This is what we were created for. This is what we were created for. This is the gospel. And as we continue on in the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to see this over and over and over. Rebellion and stubbornness and sin. But God has given us the solution to that. And may this cause us to worship Yeshua, Jesus, who saves us from our sin. Will you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful that we can call you a father. You're not just a distant being. You're not just a creator. You are the one who cares for us. You have a warmth and tenderness for us, God. And if that is true, then how could we not but trust you and hold your hand as you guide us through this life? So I pray that you would impress this truth on our hearts. I pray that we'd worship you all the more because of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.